Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the inauguration, and then we're joined by author Charles Martin. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I'm realizing now, in hindsight, to say welcome to The Common Good. We're assuming that the show we're creating right now is actually definitively common good. But not everyone (laughs) might agree with that. I do... That could sound a little lofty, couldn't it? It really could. We've been we've been accused of that before. <laughs> so I, uh, it, it is looking for some good in the world. This is it. You have just tuned into it. It's <laughs> you happening. Have finally, found it. <laughs> it's happening right under your nose. Stick around. Anywho, you can find us all over the place, and uh, not only you can, we encourage you to interact. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you want to review a page, or subscribe to it, or leave a comment, or send us a message. All of that helps a bunch, and we're really grateful for all of you who have done that already. I don't, uh, I don't often remember to not just jump right into business, but I'm doing a better job. I think, I think I'm trying, I'm trying to be more intentional, Brian. Before we get into the the nitty gritty of the uh, inauguration day festivities and whatnot, how are you doing? I'm doing really well today, man. I, I, uh, uh, we've been telling people if they listen to the show on a regular basis that we've been doing this show from our separate homes, but I'm actually up at the radio station today. So it's really fun to see people again, to see Debbie face to face, our producer. And uh, yeah, you're missing out on the party up here. I know you're still back at home, but uh, yeah, it's been fun. So I'm enjoying my day today. And as you said, we're going to talk about the inauguration, but you go about your day and then you look up at the TV and you're like, wait, this is a big day today, regardless of your politics. This is a big day today. And so it's been weird, like the normalcy of the day and then to be reminded, oh, yeah, a new a new administration is inaugurated today. And that's that's a really historical moment. I'm always just a little confused why you refer to them as our two separate houses. I think people assume that our houses are separate. I think that's <laughs> they don't think we room together. <laughs> our, our two conjoined houses. We uh we, we live point. in a two flat together. Just in, case, <laughs> just in case there's any confusion out there, I want to make sure people know that. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like if I uh, if I was a little more sensitive, I'd be hurt by that. Like, well, he's really emphasizing just how separate I yeah. am from this guy. I want you guys to know we're not even in the same zip code. That's how separate our houses are. Very okay, so true. you you were saying off air that uh, you you watched or you at least watched parts of it. Before we get into any commentary or whatever pundits or authors are saying, what, what did you think of everything as you're watching it unfold? So again, you know, I, I, when every time inauguration happens, like regardless of my politics or people's politics, you, you just get reminded of like, oh, our country's bigger than that president or that person or that vice president or whatever else, and and, sure. I, and so. And, and again, some of the pomp and circumstance obviously w- did not exist today because President Trump chose not to participate in the inauguration. But even that waking up this morning and turning on the Today Show and the first thing I see is President Trump walking out and flying away. Uh, it was just kind of this like you're reminded of like this transfer of power. And then there were just some powerful. I didn't watch all the inauguration. I've been like kind of in and out listening to it on the radio and stuff. But I thought. Uh, now, President Biden gave a really, um, I thought, a well done inauguration speech, really pointing the the country towards unity and healing. And again, uh, easier said than done. Uh, but but I thought that was really impressive. But, you know, stealing the show uh, was what was her name? Anna Gorman. Was that her name? Amanda, Amanda uh, Gorman. Amanda Gorman, who uh, who 
22 years old, I think, young poet laureate who spoke. And that was so powerful, man. Uh, yeah. Could you imagine being in that seat? So anyway, uh, again, I, I want to kind of hopefully people are even able to remove politics from it. I know that's difficult to do, but to see past presidents there, to see the new president take his oath and the kind of the the depth of that, to see even Vice President Pence there. Uh, and to see the kind of the pomp and circumstance, I always love watching the inauguration. It's funny. I keep hearing people say steals the show or she stole the show. Do you, has the inauguration always been like a show? Like in my mind, maybe I'm getting hung up in semantics. I'm like, it's a, it's a ceremony though. Like the, well, this act stole the show. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) like, I don't really think that's what all of that was supposed to be. But then again, you know, you had uh, Gaga and Jennifer Lopez and Garth Brooks. Right. When when uh, when Garth Brooks had everyone, whether they were there or at home, uh, sing with him. I, at first, I was like, "That's kind of cheesy." And then, like three seconds in, I was like, "This is kind of moving." <laughs> like I I completely rounded a corner in that one. But I I'm with you. The, uh, Amanda Gorman, I just thought was what it was. It was moving. It was powerful. It was it felt. It just there's so much about it that felt right. And again, like you said, and we'll probably have to say this a number of times throughout the coming days and weeks. Politics aside, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. we can still recognize, like oh, that was beautiful or that was pointed. I also think of uh, uh, Reverend O'Donovan, and he uh, he invoked the holy mystery of love mm-hmm. in his in his prayer. I'm just read a short part of it. It says, "Help us under our new president to reconcile the people of our land, restore our dream, and invest it with peace and justice and the joy that is the overflow of love." I like I heard that and thought. Oh man, some some people are taking us straight to church, and it, that was um, that it was encouraging. There's there's plenty of things, and I've seen a lot of pastors, particularly like moderate pastors, say, "Hey, I can celebrate the parts of this that were momentous, and still be on guard about certain policies that I I know are inevitable." You know, like right. this holding of the tension. That's kind of what I want to ask you about with the remaining minutes that we have, because you know, and I posted a couple of things on Facebook as it was happening. And people might be assuming like, oh, he's this or he's a that. And I'm, I'm assuming that's probably why other people didn't say anything at all. And it is weird to me. It is sort of a theme that we come back to on the show a lot. Like, is it possible in your mind to celebrate the aspects of today that each individual finds celebratory and to still reserve other parts for caution or concern even? And can those coexist in the same space in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. When I watch that today, when I watch the inauguration, uh, I'm moved by what it means for the country. I'm moved by kind of uh, the gravity of it all. There are certainly things about the Biden administration that I'm concerned about. And, and but it almost feels like on inauguration, like we'll, we'll pick those up tomorrow. Like, you know, we'll we'll start having those conversations. But to hear him call to unity and um, and to a way forward, like there was just something really special about it. And so I do think you could be the staunchest conservative Trump supporter in the world and still go, but what happened today was important. And, and, and there's a second thing that we, as, as Christ followers, I think must take from today. And I saw, thankfully, a lot of people on Twitter uh, that I respect saying this, and that is the same way that we were called in 2016 at the inauguration to pray for president Trump today, regardless of your politics, now we are called to pray for President Biden. Like as Christ followers, we are called to pray for him. Uh, and that is vitally important. We could disagree about things. We can agree about things. Uh, but our call, regardless of who you voted for, 
is to pray. And and I appreciated friend of the show, Ed Stetzer. He put out a tweet today that I'm sure he got pushed back on, but it essentially said that. It said, mm-hmm. uh, at this moment uh, in 2017, I, I committed to praying for President Trump. And in this moment today, I commit to pray for President Biden. And I think if more of us as Christ followers could do that, uh, I, if that were our first posture, I think that would be really important, a really big um, step of growth. And so as you were asking, I think you can definitely disagree and have concerns about the administration and still uh, think that today is a special day and still feel like there's gravity and still be pushed to prayer for the new president. Well, and not surprisingly, we know that you listening will have uh, different opinions and postures toward this. So as always, this article and other stories like it are up on our Facebook page. What do you think? Is this something worth celebrating full stop? Is it celebrating with an asterisk? Are you upset or concerned? Where, where are you sort of landing and grappling with everything that's happening in the world? If we had more time, Brian, I kind of wanted to ask you, too, about just as preachers, as communicators, you know, Biden's communication style, knowing some of the hurdles that he's overcome. I heard even, you know, a, a left leading news source earlier today that was like, yeah, even though he's he's not as like charismatic and gregarious as as Trump or Obama are, right. there was something very moving about even just his demeanor with which he said what he said. And and again, you know, I have a number of friends who said it's just theater. None of it matters. You know, so there's obviously <laughs> understandably there's opinions all over the place. And we would truly love to know what you think. Coming up next, our guest for two segments, author Charles Martin, who wrote the new book, They Turned the World upside down that's what's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. we are thrilled to have not for one but two segments author charles martin welcome to the show sir thank you for having me appreciate it hey it's our pleasure would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to everyone my name is Charles Martin. I'm 51 years old, uh, husband to Christy for 27 years, mm-hmm. father of three boys, Charlie, John, T, and Reeves. This feels a little bit like the gladiator. You know, <laughs> I, I, I never really had one that good, you know, father of it and whatever. Um, I wish I had a better biography than that. But anyway, I have 14, 15 novels, two books of nonfiction. And um, yeah, That's there you awesome. have it. And Charles, like you just said, you've written quite a few books, mostly novels. And so uh, just uh, as we talk about your new book, They Turn the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. I'm fascinated just to know what motivated you to write a nonfiction book specifically about the disciples. I am currently talking to you from my office and in my chair where I write. And I've written a lot of books in this chair. Hmm. And I was working on probably my 12th novel, a, a story about a musician and uh, who starts in Colorado, ends up in Nashville. It's a novel called Long Way Gone. And somewhere in the middle of that book, I, I, I had this conversation with the Lord because I talked to him about my stories all the time. And I was like, Lord, I, I love what you let me do. I mean, I'm grateful. Please don't hear what I'm about to say as complaining. But if I could ever push pause on my fiction long enough to kind of tell the story of you and me, or at least the story of what you've revealed to me about yourself through your word and through my walk with you. I would love to try and figure out a way to do that. I, I, w- I just, I would love to do it. And the, the, the follow up to that very quickly came with just me being in the word and, and really asking the gut check question 
specifically mm. about the words of Jesus, what if these are true? Mm. Like, what if he means them today with the same depth of meaning? And actually even more so because they've stood 2,000 years of time. What if he still means them today the way he meant them when he spoke them? And in truth, he's still speaking them. The word is living and active. It doesn't die. So, but I just like, what if this is really true? Like this, this should shake some stuff loose in my life. My, if I really believe what he's saying, maybe my life should look a little different. Mm-hmm. And so that's yeah. what, that was what undergirded the story. I met with my publisher. It was the easiest publishing contract I've ever you know, received. And she's in like 30 seconds, she said, great, let's do it. And so the precursor to what you and I are talking about came out a year ago. It's called What If It's True? And it really mm-hmm. deals with the life of Jesus up into, you know, death, crucifixion, resurrection. They turn the world upside down, really picks up with the resurrection, walks up on the top of the Mount of Olives with these disciples and Jesus ascends in the Father's chariot. And I think all of these believers, and I think Scripture says there are about 120 of them, are standing on the top of the mount, looking at this vapor trail, starting to scratch their head and saying to, their, to themselves, what on earth do we do now? Hmm. I mean, they right. had his authority. He'd given them their, his authority. And they had his commands, but he had yet to give them his power. Mm-hmm. And so they walk down the mountain, scratching their heads. And then about seven days later, the roof starts to shake. So I just, you know, I mean, for me, the question was, how did these people who were a bunch of broken, wretched, black hearted sinners like us who saw a dead man live? How, how how did they eventually when we get to Acts 16, 17, you know, they're described as these are they who have turned the world upside down. Another translation says these are those who have upended the inhabited earth. So what did they do? So right. there you ha- there's the book. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's I feel like there's been a lot of conversation especially from pastors this last year about the disciples and often I hear preachers talk about the diversity sort of within that group and like how by most metrics like these would not be people who would normally be friends at all and yet Jesus chooses them. I I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. Like why why do you think Jesus chose the people that he chose? I, I I don't know that I can answer that. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger question for me is why would he choose me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I look at me and I know me and I'm, I'm the, the more I, the more I, the more time I spend in his word and, and the more I feel like my eyes are lifted to him and I, I have maybe a, a better view of him, the more I understand my own, and I'm not just blowing snow cause I'm on your show. I mean, I, I really, I, I, my heart has been convicted of this. Like I, I know my own unworthiness mm. and yet the most illogical story I've ever heard in my life, which is absolutely true, is that the king of the universe took off his crown, his ring, his priestly garb, laid his diadem in the corner, dressed himself in a loincloth and took a swan dive out of heaven to rescue a bunch of rebels like us. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but once he rescues us, he returns us to his father, which was the destination all along. It wasn't just escaping hell. And once we get there, he gives us all of his authority and makes us co-heirs. That, that's that's the crazy. I write stories for a living, and that is the craziest story I've ever heard. And yet, it's mm. the most precious thing I've ever heard. Yeah, 
Yeah. I wonder as you dove into the disciples and, and there, as Ian said, there's a, a real diversity to who they are, what they did. Was there one disciple that you really resonate with most? Like you're like, oh, I can really resonate with that guy. Or, or was it just pieces of all of them for you? Well, probably pieces. I mean, we got, let's, let's go back real quick just to, you know, Jesus ascends. He's gone. <laughs> Peter's not quite sure what to do with himself because he's betrayed his best friend. He looks to all his buddies and he says, I'm out of here. I'm going fishing. And notice by what he's doing, he's returning to his former life and he's no longer following his king. Even when he stood on the, on the mountain and, and, and affirmed Jesus as the Christ. So he's ashamed, which is what's, you know, the, the enemy is yanking his chain with his own shame because he, he, he denied his best friend, his Lord. And then the, then, and then just in beautiful Jesus fashion, the Lord restores him on a little beach called Tabgo on the northern northwestern end of the Sea of Galilee. And he does it around a charcoal fire, which is a, immediately a signal to Peter, because when he denied him, he's standing around a charcoal fire talking to a slave girl. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the Lord, I think in scripture doesn't say this. So I'm, you know, I could be wrong, but I think the Lord sat down next to him and wrapped his arm around him and said, Peter, do you, do you love me? And I don't think it was, I've heard this taught like Peter, like the Lord was con- like, really poking Peter in the chest and sort of, you know, this tone, like, do you love me? I I don't think that was it. I think he was saying, Hey, I know that you love me, but like, you really love me. And I think Peter was heartbroken. And I think he, all he wanted to do was, you know, for the Lord to restore him. And then the Lord does, he said, all right, feed my sheep, Hmm. which makes Peter now a shepherd, which he's uniquely qualified to do because he understands lost sheep. And I think that's the, I think those are the words he's, been wanting to hear second only to the last words Jesus says to him, which are follow me, which were the first words he spoke to him in the first place. So now Peter's reinstated. He's now following again his king. And we see Peter become the Peter we all hoped he could be. And he stands up on the southern steps of the temple and gives maybe the second best sermon in the history of sermons, second only to the one that occurred on the mount. And you know, we see thousands are added. So, so Peter become, and the beautiful thing in that story for us is that the Lord can handle our shame. Mm-hmm. Right. When I say this in the book, I say there is more grace in Jesus than sin in us. Mm. Mm. That's great. And I, I, I need to hear that. Mm. I mean, the people I do life with need to hear that. The folks the Lord brings me in touch with. I, I, I don't, I can't tell you I have some prison ministry because I'm not there all the time and COVID has changed it a lot, but prisoners read my books. And I've been in prison a pretty good bit. And this is one thing that's consistent with almost all of them is that they need to know that the grace of Jesus is greater than their sin. Mm-hmm. In your book, uh, you devote two entire chapters to the topic of faith. So not only, uh, yeah, I guess I would like to ask, why did you do that? Why was it so important to give two whole chapters to the topic of faith? Boy, you know, there's been like wars fought over this, so I'm going to try and fit this in in nine minutes. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me just say that as I look at the, these believers through the, you know, through the Gospels and in the, the book of Acts, I'm reading about people who I think were a lot like me. They, had, they, they just wrestled with, how, how do I do what you've commanded me to do? Mm-hmm. And, and I think at the root of that, obviously... They were empowered by his Holy Spirit and we were empowered by his Holy Spirit. And I believe in the same way. But at its root, the thing that like you don't become an icon of faith if you don't believe what he said to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the root that grows the 
fruit of faith, the root that feeds that tree for me is belief. And the thing that the Lord immediately dealt with in, 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 in actually in his resurrection, he walks back into the room and they're standing there looking at him. And they said, that, and it says they could not believe for hope. They, they couldn't believe they're standing there looking at him. And so the first thing the Lord has to deal with in them is their own unbelief. And I think he has to do that with us. And the, mm. there's a, I talk about this in the book. So before you ever get to the chapters on faith, I really, I feel like I wrestle as best I can with this idea of, of belief. And there are two types of belief. There is belief in and belief that. And I mm. think most of us believe that rarely or more or less regularly do we believe in. And here's the difference. Okay. Jesus took these people from believing that he was king of all kings to believing in him and in his lordship. And it's like if you and I are standing on a great chasm or um, let's say we're standing on the side of the Grand Canyon and there's a bridge across and below the bridge is 5,000 feet and people are bungee jumping (laughs) off the bridge. They're walking out there. They're running out there. They're strapping that little thing around their ankles. They're taking a swan dive off the bridge and falling three, four thousand feet, and it you know stretches their spine. They grow four inches, pop back up, and you know they're all giddy. Okay, you and I can stand on the side of that chasm and we can point at that little contraption around their ankles and we can say, "I believe that will hold me if I fall." Mm-hmm. It's a very different posture than walking out on the bridge, buckling that thing around my ankle and taking a Peter Pan off the bridge. Mm-hmm. And and the thing that the Lord did with these disciples is he took them off the side of the chasm and he brought them out on the bridge where they are living in and believing in what he said and who he was. And when they're they're not just following him on the sidelines, they're following him in belief that what he said was true and he will do what he says he will do. Yeah. And so as I've wrestled with my own faith or lack thereof sometimes – the root for me is always belief. And do I really believe what he said? And let's just take something simple. Let's take Matthew 10, 10. Preach the word, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. How often do I pray for the dead? Mm. I've done it once. I'm not, it's not a regular thing in my life. And here's my point I'm trying to make. If I really believed what he said, my prayers would look different. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would, I would walk differently on planet earth. And for me, the root of that is just following my King and believing that he is who scripture says he is and his word is true and it will not fail. That's really helpful. So if there's people out there right now going, yeah, I, I get that differentiation. I tend to be a, I'm just kind of believing that, but man, what he's saying, I really want this believe in how do people grow in that? How do we make that shift in our life? In your opinion? Boy, that may be another segment too, but here's, here's, Here's here's what I know about my king. I mean, Jesus wants us to walk that way with him, and it is he who reveals himself to us. So as I've spent time in his word, and he's continued to reveal himself to me, I believe him more. My life looks, albeit I'm broken, and I walk with a limp like every other guy, but my, my life looks a little more like his today than it did yesterday. And if you look at scripture, like look at Isaiah when he meets the Lord and, and he, you know, he, he meets him, the Lord touches his tongue with the coal. And eventually what Isaiah says is, I am undone. Mm-hmm. 
Same thing with the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee has this self-righteous view of himself. He's saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this person, this person, this person, this person. His view is totally horizontal. The tax collector can't even lift his eyes. He says, Lord, please forgive me and have mercy on me. And the word he's using there for mercy is make propitiation for me, which is please pay the payment for my sin because it's more than I can pay in 10,000 lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So my point is when I lift my eyes up onto him, and I, 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 I try and let him shape my view of him through his word and who he is and what he says. Belief seems to follow. It's not something I conjure up. It's, I mean, Scripture says it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. So I think as I spend time in his word and with him, that belief thing just grows. That's great. I love the title of your book. They turn the world upside down. And and we get that when we read the book of Acts, we see that the early church, the whole world, you know, it just changed everything. Uh, With the time we have left, I wonder if you have some thoughts as to what would it look like now? Not only if we believe this, but if we turn the world upside down, if if God's church, if Christ followers uh, acted in this way that you're talking about, believed in this way that you're talking about, what would some of the results be? What would it look like for the church to turn the world upside down today? Man, I wish I knew I had the answer to that. I think here's what I think we would do. I don't know what the effect would be, but here what I think we would do is we would forgive more quickly. Mm. We would love really like Jesus. And when people see us, they would say those people are Christians based upon the way that they love. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if we just did those, if we just did those two things, just love like Jesus, which means we lay down our life. Other people's stuff is more than people are more important than our stuff. And if we forgave those who didn't deserve forgiveness, mm-hmm. because we don't deserve it. So I think if we just did, I mean, I'm looking at my own life, but if I just did those two things in my own life, and both are relevant because anytime you put out a book, you, you have critics. And there, there's a reason the critics are called critics. So I put out a book and my email, you know, sometimes will fill up with people saying, well, you know, everybody has an opinion these days. So as I've just released a book here recently, mm-hmm. the Lord, I mean, the Lord is asking like, Charles, you, you really, do you really believe this? You've written 130,000 words about me. Do you really believe it? You're going to love like me. Can you forgive these folks? Mm-hmm. I think if we, if, if we as a body of believers did that, I don't know what the world would look like, but I think it would look different. Absolutely. And again, uh, the new book from Charles Martin is entitled, They Turn the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. Charles, I'm really excited to dive into this book. Before we let you go, uh, where can people find more? Where can they find your books? Where can they follow you on social media? Why don't you give everybody everywhere they can find you? Well, you can find my books anywhere books are sold. Obviously, Amazon is a big one. If you want a signed one, look up San Marco Books in Jacksonville, Florida, called Desiree. That's San Marco Books in Jacksonville, Florida, called Desiree. I'm on all over social media. Just look up Charles Martin. You'll find me. Great. Again, that's Charles Martin, the author of the new book, They Turn the World Upside Down. We'd encourage you to go pick that up and you'll be better off for doing so. Charles, this was really fun. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here, friends. First off, how good was Charles Martin? So that good. That was real good. I, I feel like it's almost unfair 
how many like great interviews we've landed. Like Absolutely. every time, I don't. Do you have this moment where you're like in the middle of an interview? And I'm like, I can't believe this person's talking to us. Like, yeah. it sort of, it, it like blows my. We've just been able to talk to so many like interesting, wise, insightful, intriguing people. And yeah, every at least at least once an interview, almost every time, it's like. Wow, this this is amazing to me that we get to do any of this. So either way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would uh, highly recommend you go back and listen to the podcast because it was phenomenal. And maybe even better, go and get his book. That's right. Um, so here's here's a, a an article. I can't even really call it an article. This is like the most deleted article uh, that we've ever had on the show. I've put it in the rundown. <laughs> oh, deleted by us. I think okay. like like five or six times and it keeps having to get moved and it might be obvious after we do this segment, like why, but uh, I don't, I don't even have like a strong reason as to why I really want to do this, but it, I just keep coming back to it before I dive into it. Were you or are you a Calvin and Hobbes fan? Uh, yes, I was certainly a Calvin and Hobbes fan. That does not sound confident at all. I- it's me going, I'm sure there's bigger, like not just bigger fans, but like, like I had, I remember uh, one Christmas being given a Calvin and Hobbes book and reading through it and loving it, but it wasn't like I opened up the paper every day. Like what was Calvin and Hobbes today? But yeah, it was always a cartoon though, that if you looked for it, had some very poignant moments or some cultural, um, you know, it would point out things culturally that, you know, kind of like how we always talk about stand up comics. Uh, it was able to do that was a long winded way of saying, yes, I enjoy Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> how about yourself? OK, well, <laughs> yes, uh, maybe embarrassingly, maybe not so much. So more aggressively than what you just described. I, I, that's uh, what I, I knew there were people. I obviously co-host a show with one who were like Calvin and Hobbes fans. I didn't want to be on that level, but I did. I do enjoy Calvin and Hobbes. And you can't you can't rank whether or not you're a fan by. Oh, I'm sure somebody likes this more. Like, do you like mint chocolate chip ice cream? <laughs> I don't want to say like because I'm sure someone likes it more. Like, it's okay Fair. to just like it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. For all the reasons and more, I think it's. I think it's masterfully illustrated. I think the message is Watterson. I think was just prolific. It, somehow being able to communicate things that nobody else was able to either way i i'll uh i'll stop there i won't fanboy out anymore you want to you want to get us into this pretty interesting article real quick yeah it's david zoll he writes uh resolving to love calvin and Hobbes 25 years later so why are we bringing it up it says on new year's eve 2020 uh mark the 25th anniversary of the end of calvin and Hobbes. like right there makes me feel old because i remember mm-hmm. when calvin and Hobbes ended so right. at the end of calvin right. and Hobbes. While two decades may sound like a long time, the strip has dated remarkably little. Instead, it is slowly but surely being recognized as the work of art that it is, and not just by the generation that grew up reading it. I watch every year as parents of young children giddily introduce the work of kids scarcely older than Calvin himself, and kids get obsessed. Just last week, he writes, a second grader came over to our house for a play date and essentially melted down when he spied the book set sitting on our shelf. Mark my words, he says, Calvin and Hobbes will go down as one of the abiding cultural achievements of our time. The amount of expression and joy and humanity that Bill Watterson was able to wring out of those four panels over 10 years is simply astounding. So do you think he's overstating it? I'll pause there. You, you, like you said, we're a big fan. Uh, Do you think he's overstating it? Or do you think Calvin and Hobbes is one of these, um, uh, is one of these things and culturally that is going to is continuing to carry on 25 years later and will continue to carry on. 
I think it's possible he's understating it, Brian. That's how really that's how strongly. No, not really. But I th- I think he's spot on, though. I think, um, like you were saying too, there is something about comedy and art, especially like pop art, that has a capacity when done really, really well to speak to whatever cultural moment, but also kind of transcend cultural moments. Like I've gone back and read certain strips and thought, wow, how is this still? And some of it's nostalgia. Like I have to admit that's part of it, you know, but there's a, there's a certain power when you read something a decade, two decades later and think, well, that's yes, that still has a lot of meaning, like specific lucid meaning right here. Now he actually goes on to reference a series called the theology of Calvin and Hobbes, which sounds fantastic as uh, from Richard Beck. Let's get him on the show. Seriously. Cause I, I would love, I would love to talk about that idea, but I, yeah, I'd be curious to know as someone who's sort of like a a, a moderate fan, like what what is it do you think about Calvin and Hobbes specifically, and is there anything that applies to us here and now that could potentially be helpful? I always thought that the best thing about Calvin and Hobbes was uh, the friendship, right? You've got like the crazy little kid and this tiger, and and they clearly had this love, and I, I don't mean to overlook into it, but you know. Calvin was always getting in trouble or doing this or that. And, and he had like his sidekick, his buddy with them. I always thought that there was like a friendship there that, that, you know, you wouldn't be like, Oh yeah, I want what, but there was a sense deep down. Like I would like that. Uh, or, you know, it made you recognize who's my friends that are always sticking by my side. And again, you could lose it because it's a little kid and a tiger. But, but I think at the essence of, of this comic strip was this, this bond between the two of them, uh, that I do think we resonate with all of us. We go, we want, I want that in my life. I want friends like that in my life. I want relationships with it in my life. And I do think that even though we wouldn't read it, like, I want that. Like, I think subtly we go, yeah, you know what? There's something attractive about that. So he's going to go on to talk about uh, New Year's resolutions, actually. And it's a, it's written from a, a Christian perspective. So it's about New Year's resolutions and Calvin Hobbes and theology what what's kind of he driving at here yeah he says we pounce on the phenomenon of new year's uh resolutions uh because it provides such a natural access point to discussions about the law and therefore the gospel think about it resolutions are almost always the expression of a failure to live up to some kind of standard along with an intention uh to do better uh, so what does this have to do with Calvin and Hobbes? He writes, well, I was leafing through my collections over the holiday and discovered something fascinating. With the exception of the first two years of the strip, Watterson annually revisited the subject of New Year's resolutions. Clearly, the practice struck him as one funny and two ripe for commentary about deeper things. Moreover, in reading each of the strips, I realized that he had perhaps inadvertently cataloged the human response to judgment and relationship <laughs> to self-improvement with remarkable breadth and thoroughness. Uh, he goes on to talk about the book of Galatians. Uh, and he says, it turns out Watterson spelled all of this out much better than I ever could. And he's going to show us one of the clips. But his idea, he's basically saying that that Watterson through Calvin and Hobbes, even unintentionally, uh, talked to us about law and gospel. And I haven't really thought about New Year's resolutions that way, that it's lo- like, it's like I failed this year and I must do better, kind of like I must strive and and as opposed to the gospel, which is like, you know what, you failed, but uh, that's not what this is about. I find this interesting. It's a, it's quite the interweaving. People who could take Calvin and Hobbes, go law and gospel, <laughs> New Year's resolution, super impressive. <laughs> well, and again, this is, we could probably have uh, stretched this out over two or three segments because there's a lot there, like you said, 
that was a, a very fast flyover. But uh, I know that we're a few weeks into January now, and some of us have maybe already abandoned New Year's resolutions, or maybe you don't care about Calvin and Hobbes, or you're just here to listen to Brian and I stumble our way through thoughts that we haven't fully formulated. Either way, <laughs> I, I would recommend checking it out because it's it, it one is definitely an exercise in really interesting prose. But two, if you even remotely like Calvin and Hobbes, you'll see some of those themes, I think, in a really n- interesting new light. And the fact that he kind of weaves in um, a pretty robust biblical theology as he does it to me. And maybe I'm kind of nerding out in a way that's not helpful for radio. Uh, I found it really, really intriguing. And uh, of course, we would love to know what you all think. This is up on our Facebook page as well as our Twitter account, and you can comment over there. Coming up next, though, a uh, conservative Christian who we've actually had on the show before is writing at the Christian Post why he thinks a Biden presidency might actually be really good for the church. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, why this conservative writer thinks that a Biden presidency will be good for the church. And then later, we're going to talk about Dave Ramsey and his culture. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here on this I want to say it's cold, but that also feels like it's just normal. It's normal temperature right right now. It just feels colder than normal, doesn't it? A little bit? It does. It's been pretty moderate uh, for the last couple of weeks. Like It hasn't been that crazy, oh, uh, winter here in Chicagoland. So I 100% agree with you. Today it was like 15 degrees, which is very normal for January, and it felt frigid to me. So, yes, I 100% agree with what you're saying. But it's like not I mean, it's like 30 right now. I don't know who who even knows. It's weird to me that every year my body is as shocked by the cold as it was the year prior every Uh year. It's like, yeah, you've lived in the Midwest your entire life, man. It's it's about to get cold. Just brace yourself. All right. So real quickly, before we get into this article, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. So Michael Brown, he wrote over the Christian Post and we've had him on the show before, like a very uh outspoken conservative trump supporting christian mm-hmm. and uh, he wrote an article when was this just yesterday why a biden presidency could be good for the church what's happening here yeah again michael brown who has been on our show as you said and and was very outspoken he he spent time on our show talking about why christians need to vote for president trump before the election uh, author of 25 books host of nationally syndicated shows so this is not just some random guy Uh, And he said this, he says, uh, like many of you reading the article, I voted for Donald Trump, which means I voted against Joe Biden. I've also written many articles calling out the radical nature, in his opinion, of the Democratic platform. Uh, And now he's going to go on to say the the worries he has for a Biden presidency. And so uh, you would think that as you're reading it, it's just going to continue to go. We need to be careful. This is going to be bad. Here we go. But then the article turns. He says, Michael Brown writes, at the same time. I believe the election of Joe Biden might be in the best interest of the Church of America. So that's a that at, at first blush, you're a little confused by that. Like that's not what I expected. Michael Barron on the right, he said, and he he knew that that's what you would think. He said, "How can I say such a thing?" Simply stated, he writes, "It's because many of us Christian conservatives put too much trust in a man." And then he parenthetically says, "If you didn't, fine." I said, "Many of us, 
not all of us. We were looking to a man to preserve our religious freedoms, looking to a man to overturn Roe versus Wade, looking to a man to fight our battles, to be our champion, looking to a man to push back against the evil agendas of the radical left, looking to a man to bring peace to the Middle East. And then he says, such an attitude is never healthy, especially when that man is Donald Trump, a man who could be as abrasive and destructive as he could be winsome and uniting. So I'm going to pause there. And, uh, you and I, like we said, we've had Michael Brown on the show. He is a uh, a very, um, he's a card-carrying, proud Trump supporter. And so uh, to say here that we put, people like himself and others put too much uh, faith in a man, and therefore uh, the the election of Joe Biden could be good for the church. Hey, were you surprised to see Mike, someone like Michael Brown, write that? And what do you think about what he had to say? I mean, I found it a little surprising, but I I do appreciate. Again, obviously, there's. I don't know that we've ever had a guest or an article that you and I both agreed with 100. percent Just to right. say that out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's certainly aspects to this that I would I would maybe push back on or want to clarify but his um his general posture though i think is refreshing the 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 idea that yeah maybe we actually and we you know speaking for his perspective we've we've depended too much on this one person and not just this one person but this one person holding a particular seat of power and influence um i mean we can do that in micro and macro ways all the time, right? This isn't just a, a conversation about Donald Trump or the president, For but sure. the call that he's making kind of throughout the article about the church being the church in, in ways that matter most and to be mindful of even, you know, with the best of intentions, not being caught up in the kinds of obsessions in the, of the world that so often derail and distract the church. Honestly, when I think of like friends and church planners in Africa, or other parts of the world there it's always so convicting to me when they offer their candid sort of assessment of the American church and the stuff that we're, we're very easily caught up in without even realizing it. And the stuff that we tend to fight about or disagree on. Like I, I have been very, very grateful for a, a more global perspective in that regard. Cause sometimes it's easy to miss, but either way, I, uh, I think, I think his general thesis here is, is pretty interesting. I would really be interested. You can do it at our Facebook page or anywhere. I wonder if you're out there and you're somebody who was a full-fledged supporter of President Trump, not just voted for him, but really passionately following him. Uh, if you're feeling some of this, um, I mean, Michael Brown feels very introspective to me here. He feels very uh, kind of taking stock of his life. He's basically saying, hey, and even if President Trump had gotten reelected, he said, I probably would have put too much faith in him, in the man and the church and would have done the same. And he at the end says, uh, maybe this is what will take to wake us up. An awakened church remains the hope of the nation. Uh, hmm. It is that force alone, the force of the gospel lived out that can change hearts. Then people with changed hearts can reshape the government and the courts. Then we will have change that can last. He's saying, I, I'm praying. He's hoping that this is a wake up call. And I, I really do appreciate what he's saying here. And I think it's not just Trump supporters. Some people are now going to face this in the opposite because yeah. you've hated Donald Trump for so long. And now Joe Biden's in office and your hope is in him. I guess I would ask, when do we, it's a hard, a hard question to answer. So I'll throw it your way. How do you know when you've put your hope in a man? Like, how do you know? Like, what do you think Michael Brown, well, Someone like Michael Brown came to the point of like, man, my hope was misplaced and it took this to see it. When, how would we even tell this? I think 
the answer to that is as diverse as people are, but I think probably mm-hmm. some telltale signs are if it leads you to utter despair to even imagine a reality other than your person having this position or having the seat of influence. If you can't even Im- imagine a future possibility where they're not in it or, or maybe even this is a little more subtle. I think we can often be inclined to say things like, Oh man, uh, God would really do his work. If so-and-so won whatever election or sat at a, like God's, God's hands are not tied by who sits in what office in what state or what country or continent for that matter. Like it's not, you mean, I think that there's, it's a, it's a perfectly fine thing. I think it's maybe even important to be honest. And we've talked about that on the show to engage with these things, maybe even more appropriately to elevate political discourse and to seek to be peacemakers and not just peacekeepers. But uh, I think all of those things are probably more easily weeded out when we have, like close accountability and when our accountability is more diverse than just people who look and talk and act and think and vote and believe just like me. I think there's always a danger there. That's kind of where like group thinking mob mentality can come from. Like, Hey, all 10 of my closest friends totally agree all the time. You're like, yeah. yeah have you talked to anybody kind of outside of that worldview? That might be helpful, but I don't know. How, how would you answer that question? Uh, I, I think in big general terms, it's when I, when I think to myself, uh, so-and-so, if so-and-so gets elected, then we have hope. Then we're going to head in the right. right direction, as opposed to putting our hope in Jesus, uh, regardless of who is in office. I think once we start talking using words like hope and salvation, or, you know, he's going to save the nation, these kinds of things, I think we realize we're putting our, our, our hope in the wrong spots. And that's why I found this just to be really a telling article, because we know Michael Brown to be someone who is, and he's very honest about it, very pro-Trump. And so to see this sort of reflection uh, is uh, really interesting because I think uh, this is going to be something, I think, especially as we go from one administration to another, that is going to be an interesting point for a lot of us to wrestle with. I think that you are right, my friend. All right, coming up next, I didn't want to do it, but I I kept seeing it all over the place. I really don't. I'm not excited to do it how's that for a tease i don't even, I don't even want to go there but uh yeah a lot of people have been talking about dave ramsey lately and more specifically dave ramsey's work culture so we're going to take a uh, a mildly deep dive into some of those questions coming up next here in the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian James Fromm, and welcome back to the show. So I mentioned it before the break, Brian. I, uh, I'm really not that excited, I guess, to talk about it, but I feel like we should. Every once in a while, there's a segment like that where we both are kind of, yep. okay, we probably, it would be the right thing to do, even though it's not it's not the thing that you look at in the rundown like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to dive into this. Other people might feel that way. So We'll see where this goes, but there's just been a lot of talk of uh, of Dave Ramsey and his work culture, and uh, most recently some some emails that were sent out to another reporter and all sorts of it just it just sort of keeps snowballing. So why don't why don't you uh, get us into it a little bit? I would be glad to. And that reporter <laughs> at the Religion News, I, I'm never really sure how to say his name. Bob Smitana, S M I E T A N A. He's a regular reporter. Uh, at Religion News. And so he wrote an article entitled this, Is Dave Ramsey's Empire the, quote, best place to work in America? Say no. 
and you're out. For years, Ramsey has boasted that his company is the best place to work in the country. COVID-19 and a failure by a high-profile leader put that to the test. And so what this article is, is basically a dive into the culture of Dave Ramsey's uh, empire, if you will. And it really is an empire. Uh, Dave Ramsey has, uh, he hosts Financial Peace University. Uh, I use, uh, on my phone, I use his budgeting app. That's what my wife and I use called Every Dollar. Uh, And so a lot, Dave Ramsey's whole thing, and I always thought it's funny, kind of the insulated church world we live in. I thought Dave Ramsey, everybody in the church world knew who Dave Ramsey was. And then I brought it up to somebody close to me and like, I've never heard of that guy before. I said, oh, okay. Hmm. Um, But Ramsey Solutions has kind of come under the microscope here. And I would say it kind of started with Dave Ramsey. You know, he's kind of a bombastic guy. Uh, he likes to call himself kind of like a man's man, like all this kind of talk. And when COVID-19 hit, Ramsey was like, I am not shutting down. And he began, uh, he was one of the early people in making his people come not work remotely and come work from in the office. He said, oh, we just don't work remotely. Uh, and there's been some talk about COVID-19 spread that they've kept under wraps. Uh, he has been just out front about like denying that this is this big a deal and everyone needs to get going. And that's caused people to dive in some more. And what I think, quite frankly, what people are finding is that uh, uh, Ramsey's kind of uh, work culture sadly mirrors some of the uh, churches that we have looked at this year. Oh, boy. That that, that feel... Um, you know, unhealthy in the sense of some bullying and in the sense of uh, of just kind of uh, a culture of kind of control. That's the word I'm looking for, a culture of control. And so uh, Bob Smetana wrote this article and reached out to Ramsey's people. And what really set this ablaze was he received an email <laughs> from it was either from a PR people, but everyone was saying Ramsey had to have seen this email that got sent from his corporation. And it was the most sarcastic, the most biting, the most uh, degrading email I've seen written about and to this author that just got it got it flew around Twitter. And everyone was like, what in the world is that? And that's kind of where you and I said, man, we need to talk about this. Like, we got to get at this. And so kind of the the veil being pulled back and like, as as we said, has happened in a lot of churches uh, it, it just might not be what a lot of us thought it was, but then people are wrestling with like the good stuff that's also going on through the organization, but also sure. within the culture, right? They have regular worship time and people, there are people in the organization go, no, it's a great place to work. And so I think people are really wrestling with that. So the email, well, okay. So we're not going to read it, but you can go find it. What do you say to the person specifically about the email? And I do want to say, read it first before you form an opinion. Uh, I th- I think most people will be surprised that something uh, in that poor taste was sent out as like an official response to a journalist. That that to me, I was like, okay, like moral compass aside, this is like uh, it's, it was just childish. Like it was for me personally, it was I was like, man, I'm discouraged that like any organization or any person or entity that claims any association to Jesus to put that out. And again, I'm not saying like I haven't sent texts and emails that I've regretted. Sometimes the moment you hit send and you're like, that's right. That. So like we are not in any way sitting here from the position of like, yeah, we're two guys that figured it out and uh, we're here to help you. But what do you 
what do you say to the person that's like, ah, so it was a little sarcastic or ah, it's a little blue. Like people need to toughen up or it's not that, not that big a deal. Like maybe they're thinking, why are you even committing a whole segment to this? Uh-huh. Like, isn't, isn't that yeah. just being a little petty guys? What do you, what do you say to that? I would say, again, I'd encourage people to go read the email because uh, it's all over the place right now. But what I would say is it was beyond sarcastic. It was beyond petty. Right. It, it was it was mean uh, to this reporter and it, it degraded this reporter. Oh, you're just a freelancer, which he's not. Uh, I'm going to tell people when they see you around town about what you've like. There was some threat to it. It felt like there was some. Uh, but it also felt like in some ways, like it was written by a middle school boy. And if my middle yeah. school boy had said these things, he would have been punished. Right. And so for it to come from your PR people, wherever it went up the food chain to a reporter who's writing a story, a critical story, not, uh, you know, a critical story about your organization uh, was just really shocking because I think it begin if someone's willing to speak publicly like that. The real question becomes then what are they willing to do privately? Not just Dave yeah. Ramsey, but just the entire organization. And I think this has kind of allowed some people to say, hey, this is kind of what the organization's about. Like there's a quote in this article that says, you know what? He tends to just kind of uh, go off and people who have been around here just got inoculated to it and they, they don't really mm. pay much attention to it. Well, I don't know. Is that okay or is it not okay? Maybe that's the the key as to how he got his business to be so good. But, you know, is that something that our churches and our Christian organization should be doing where you go, you know, I know the guy at the top can be really hot and degrading, but we've kind of inoculated ourselves to it. Is that okay? That's what this article is asking because it's certainly a really successful business, right? Dave Ramsey yeah. is a really successful and has a lot of great stuff out there about money management. But when you look at the corporation, it does remind me just to be honest, about the same wrestling we did with a lot of churches we've talked about over the last two years of going, yeah, a lot of people said, yeah, he's like that or she's like that, but look at all the good fruit. So we're going to be okay with it until it Mm -hmm. all kind of comes crashing down a little bit. So in your mind, is there any additional uh, gravity to our concerns? If the person at the top, I I don't know if he considers his organization to be a Christian organization, but certainly as an individual, that's something that, um, at least in the past, I guess I don't follow Dave Ramsey all that closely. For me, I guess I'll just show my cards. Like this behavior in general would really frustrate me just mm-hmm. across the board. This is Wall Street or Chick fil A or whatever. But the, the very fact that it's like, oh man, you have in a lot of ways kind of built an empire on a Christian brand, all the more reason then to be mindful of your conduct. Like, am I, am I off on that? Does this, does this raise the bar? I mean, again, unfortunately you've said, it, you know, a number of times too, we've seen this in churches as well, but like, do you think there's, should there be additional ownership or additional accountability? If you're going to like, oh, if you're going to build it around the name of Jesus, like you need to be extra careful. Yeah. The short answer to that is yes. Yeah. Especially when you publicly say that basically our organization runs like a church. We have worship services. We, are helping, yeah, right. you know, when you're claiming that publicly, uh, no, like no church, no business is going to be perfect, but there, there's got to be some integrity to that. There's got to be some matching up of that. Uh, and otherwise it's going to come crashing down at some point and, and, and give a black eye to the church or to the name of Jesus. So I do think it's, it is certainly someone who's claiming the things that they are claiming. I think the microscope is, uh, or the magnifying glass, uh, it, it is completely legitimate to pull it out. Yeah, I hear that, man. All right, coming up next, an article by Craig Greenfield. Here's the headline. Get ready for it. 
Yes, Jesus called out corrupt politicians all the time. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Brian, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Craig Greenfield or not. I'm not. Uh, no. He is a, a pastor and a writer and a missionary. And he does it just a, I think he's I think he's a really gifted writer. It's actually amazing to me how many pastors and preachers are like such good writers, too. It's kind of frustrating, but it really uh, is. <laughs> this, it's, it's, it's like, how many things are you good at? But this was um, about a week ago, January 12th. He wrote this headline and I thought, oh, yeah, that's that feels like that fits our show. It says, yes. Jesus called out corrupt politicians all the time. What is he talking about? Yeah, he starts. I won't read the beginning. He basically starts by just acknowledging that these are turbulent times. And and I didn't realize he's in Cambodia. And he says a lot of what's going on in America happens in Cambodia. But here he goes. He says, the struggle is real. Of course, Jesus had a whole bunch of acid things to say about corrupt and crooked leaders. But too often, we don't have eyes to see what he was saying, or we reframe it as, quote, spiritual because we don't understand the political situation of Judea during the days of Jesus. Context is important, so humor me for a couple minutes, he says, while I explain the political situation of Judea. And he talks about being under Roman rule. By the time Jesus came on the scene, the whole place was in upheaval. These were exciting and turbulent times for the people of Judea. And he says four competing groups had risen up to the hold power and influence. The Sadducees, uh, who he says sucked up to the Rome and reaped the benefits. The Pharisees, who wanted separation from Rome and a religious state. The Zealots, who wanted mm-hmm. to overthrow Rome with a re- well-regulated militia. And the, uh, the Essenes, who were the hippies of their time and lived <laughs> in the communes. Uh, and so to imagine that these guys were just a motley assortment of priests and pastors who sat around doing inductive Bible studies and critiquing Jesus on minor theological points would be to miss the point. Yes. And we certainly don't need Jesus to be speaking about the Roman leaders who are mostly thousands of miles away to see that Jesus addressed political leaders. So let's pause there for a second because it's a lot of this is background. What difference does it make, not just for you, Ian, but what difference should it make for us as pastors, for us as Christ followers, just the simple statement that Jesus addressed political corruption and the political parties and the political class of his debt. Well, we, I mean, we tackled a lot of this on Monday. We've, we've certainly covered it a number of times in the past on the show, but one, there is at least in the West, a pretty pervasive thought that like to be a preacher, to be a pastor, to be a minister of the gospel means to only speak of heaven, hell, sin, and repentance. Like that's, it has an individual effect in that. And that's it. No more. We, we don't speak to systems or structures or societies and certainly not politics. Right. So the, the very fact that like he's unveiling a bit of the, the cultural hermeneutic, like here's, here's a bit more of what was actually going on during, you know, the time that Jesus was, was walking the earth. I also think it, it can get tricky obviously because we're going to disagree and that's not, that's not going away. And Jesus people disagree, believe it or not. Sometimes Christians don't all get along and don't all agree. But the sort of elevated barrier head in the sand approach is like, ah, Jesus didn't care about those things, so I don't need to care about those things. Um, I think in an unhelpful way lets us off the hook from engaging in, in that forum in any way. And I think particularly today on an inauguration day where like, man, if you were uh, – committed to praying for president Trump. I would ask you also commit to praying for president Biden and his administration. And if you were committed to critiquing president Trump, 
Mm-hmm. I would ask that you also be open to the same with this current administration and probably a healthy balance of both. To be honest, this like general sense that like, oh, I can I can blindly follow one and then just berate the other. Like, I don't I think that's also probably missing the the greater social scope of what it means to be a Christ follower. If we're Christian, a follower of Christ, then I think it's worth. And I think Craig is kind of getting at this. All right. Well, then. How did and does Jesus live? If if our life is committed to following this Christ, wouldn't it be helpful for us to know what following him actually entails? Yeah. And I think that's that's a lot of what he's what he's kind of unveiling here. Yeah, he says the Sadducees were like the most politically connected. Uh, they had a lot of religious power, a lot of political power. And he goes on to say, so it was actually pretty aggressive for John the Baptist to specifically call the Sadducees a brood of venomous snakes in Matthew mm. 3, 7. And then Jesus goes on to call them evil cheaters in Matthew 16, not to mention that he told them they were, quote, dead wrong multiple times on multiple issues. Uh, but the Sadducees weren't the only ones with the authority in, in Judea, he says. Uh, remember the little old lady who brought her two coins to the Sadducee-controlled temple? Jesus pointed out her actions to his disciples. But what we usually miss is that Jesus singles her out as an example of the corruption of the local leaders, the scribes mm. and others, right? You needed a marriage certificate, divorce papers, loan documents, a mortgage contract. You had to go to the scribes who for a small fee would sort it out for you. Every village had at least one scribe. So it was a corrupt system. And that's why Jesus calls them out. He goes after their corruption. Specifically, I think we need to point out, he goes after those who took advantage of the poor, who right. took advantage of the marginalized, who took advantage of the little old lady or the widow or the poor woman or whoever else it might be. Those are the people that Jesus goes after. And he promises them, He Greenfield goes on to say, they will be punished most severely for their hypocrisy and corruption. And, and Ian, I know as as pastors, as churches, it's like, A, we could just not want to um, – you know, rock the boat like that could be hard. But also, you know, it's hard to call out power. It's hard to call yeah. out the things that that are the powerful because it kind of puts puts you out there. And, and so it does become really difficult. But if we want to be Christ followers, we have to see that Jesus stood up for the marginalized. He stood up for the ones, excuse me, who were being uh, who were being robbed and who were being taken advantage of. And he very explicitly called out those who through their hypocrisy were the ones taking advantage of those who really couldn't stand up for themselves. Yeah. Let me just read how he ends it. He says in the crucifixion showdown, the president and official head honcho of the politically powerful Sadducees, Caiaphas engineered the charges against Jesus. And we know what happened next. Jesus was executed by the state as a criminal and an insurrectionist. Because we know the big picture, we know that Jesus forgave his accusers, overcame sin and death, and ultimately triumphed over the forces of darkness that sought to bring him down. But it wasn't some incidental sideline issue that Jesus called out their corruption and injustice throughout his ministry, because the kingdom of God will be characterized by justice and good news for the poor. The kingdom of God will be a place where people boldly hold their leaders to account because that is what is right and good for those who are downtrodden. And we hold on to his promise that those who oppress the poor and lead to corruption and violence will be held accountable. Justice is mine, says the Lord. We don't need to carry the burden of that corruption anymore or allow bitterness to fester because God holds it in his hands. And that's very good news Mm -hmm. indeed. That to me, I don't know if you have any final thoughts on that. I just think that's a really helpful 
clear way of explaining why engagement of this kind is so important. Yeah. And I just think this is where the rubber meets the road when we say I'm a Christ follower, right? Like, yeah, uh, it's not just about me and Jesus and do I go to heaven and this and that, but it's also about like, uh, caring for those that Jesus most cared for, uh, calling out what Jesus called out. And so you read the gospels and you just see who were the people Jesus pushed up against and, and called out, who were the people that he showed great compassion to and what were the actual words that he said. And, and it really does lay out how we should go be how we should be dealing with when there's corruption uh, and when uh, the people who can't stand up for themselves are the one being taken advantage of. It's, it's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. We really need to understand it to be a Jesus. Yeah, that's well said, man. Uh, Coming up next, and we haven't actually talked about COVID at all today. So we'll end this way. Where is God during COVID-19? That's coming up next here in the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hello there, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. Fret not. We will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. And I said it before the break, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19, but more specifically, like where is God when it feels like the world is unraveling, like everything's falling apart? Before that, though, I want to make sure we get in these holidays, Brian, because I know how much you yes, love them. Are you? <laughs> I do. I do. I was getting worried. Uh, you seemed very worried. Okay, so here's mm-hmm. here's a couple of things. Uh, so in Azerbaijan, it is Martyrs Day. <laughs> oh, you, okay. It's more serious. I just, is, <laughs> I just, it just sounded funny. You're saying, yeah, well, let's start in Azerbaijan. <laughs> I, want, I want the people of that country to know that I respect you, and I apologize for my co-host laughing. At just the I, mention I, I, of your country. That's, and I do have to say that I felt badly that I'd already started laughing. And then you said it's Martyrs Day. I did feel a little bit. Of yeah, that was a real one-two punch there, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> it's also Heroes Day in Cabo Verde. Uh, okay. But let's, here's the funny ones. It's Penguin Awareness Day. So be aware of penguins. I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. What is the I awareness aware. that we're trying to raise? Okay, I don't know. National uh-huh. Butter Crunch Day. That sounds yummy. <laughs> I actually have no idea what that is, but it does. I mean, I like both of those words, butter and crunch. Um, <laughs> I like butter and crunch. <laughs> it is National Cheese Lovers Day. Yay or nay on cheese. Friends. Well, Love sure. cheese. Come on, I married all- a girl from Wisconsin, man. Come on. You think that you marrying a girl from Wisconsin means, based on what you shared regarding your palate in the past... There's nothing that's obvious about what you love and don't love at this point. Okay. I should say I love cheese, which is just, you know, that statement's going to come back to haunt me at some point, but I love cheese, but I would say there are certain cheeses that I do not love. So oh we'll boy, right. there it is. Come on. I married a Wisconsin girl. Uh, and then last but not least, and this isn't, we don't technically fit into this category, but I feel like we should celebrate anyway. National disc jockey day. Oh, it's close. Yes. So, kind of. There's no discs that we're jockeying, really. So true, true, true. But to the disc jockeys out there, happy day. I hope I hope you're enjoying your day. <laughs> also, spin those tunes. Spin, spin those, tunes. those tunes. Holy, get out your Victrola. Find, <laughs> find find yourself a newest press of. I can't even pretend. All right. So this is how I want to end. I mentioned this yesterday and probably a bunch of other times. Um, with all the chaos in the world and all the disagreement, all the vitriol, all the, I mean, we don't have to go very far to find it. I want to kind of end the show, at least for a season, on a, on a more sort of devotional level, something 
maybe to think of it like as a benediction, a sort of a, a sending back into the world. And uh, I found this from BeliefNet to be mm-hmm. pretty good. The headline reads, where is God during COVID-19? The world feels like it's falling apart, but God is still with us. This is by Megan Bailey. Why don't you get us into it a little bit? I mean, the heart, the crux of the struggle is the f- question in the, the first sentence of the article. It says, when tragedy, sickness, hardship, and death strike, it becomes easy to wonder, where is God? Perhaps you've asked that question given the COVID-19 pandemic, financial strain, other things. But uh, And you ask yourself, how could God let this happen to me and to the world? And that she's going to build on that. But really, that question is not only at the heart of the article, but it's at the heart of what many people are feeling right now. And we are pastors. We're hearing this from people. It's a uh, where is God? Why is God letting this happen? Uh, why is he taking so long? What's he doing? And it's it's in the age old problem of pain and suffering. Uh, but man, it's really acute right now in the time of COVID-19. When you turn on your TV and, and you hear the person say, hey, 400,000 people have died over the course of this, or, right. you know, it's it's still going. And I do think this is a very real question that every Christ follower wrestles with, wrestles with where is God in the midst of, of something like COVID-19 in the midst of, or to personalize it when your friend or family member gets that cancer diagnosis or when you, that relationship breaks down or whatever else it might be. I think we've all had those times in our life, if we're honest, where we said, where is God? I can't reconcile in this. A good God, why, why is this happening to me? Okay, so Pastor Fromm, where where is God when when those things are happening to me? Yeah, I, and I, for the sake of the article, we could go through. They basically give us a list here that I think is good. Megan Bailey goes through uh, and says, "Here are some ans- here are some ways to answer the question." And so I think she gives five. And so I think a great way to end it because I think this starts to encompass it. But we do all have to acknowledge, and, and that's why I wanted to just kind of focus on it. Is like not only is it okay to ask this question. But it's it's normal and it's necessary. If you're one of these people who's like, I can't ever ask, uh, you know, I can't doubt God's goodness in the midst of pain. What does that say about me? Then you're still going to have these questions. I think we are. Uh, these are necessary questions to ask. And too often in Christianity, the answer is like, oh, just put a smile on your face and, and pretend everything's good. And, and that is counterproductive. And so the first thing she said is God is in control. God is in control. God is always in control and he loves you out of John chapter 16. She says this remains true despite what the circumstances may be. God has assured us that he will work all things to our good, again, doesn't say everything's good, but he will work all things to our good, Romans 8, 28, and nothing can change that truth. Every opportunity, joy, and success we experience, as well as painful losses and failures are part of his plan. God's work is in progress in our daily lives. So number one there, and you could take number two, number one, God is in control. Yeah, and I would uh, maybe push back a little bit. I don't know that painful losses and failures are always a part of God's plan. I don't know if you want to spend any more time on that one. I know there's four others here that <laughs> are worthy of our time, but I always feel I always feel the need to, to say something there because, yeah, it is a tension. It's a bit of a mystery to live mm-hmm. in rather than a problem to solve. You know, like, yeah, God's yeah. sovereignty and yet also horrible things happening that I also believe that God didn't want to happen or... Right. Break God's heart. You know what I mean? Like, so. Agreed. Yeah, I would maybe add that caveat, especially thinking through like certain hardships that people might be going through right now. Uh, secondly, God understands our pain. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every negative feeling we have is one that God understands. God is there to listen to the hurt that you feel. He understands your pain, your confusion and suffering and asks you to put it on his shoulders. I've always really loved that Mm -hmm. verse and that idea. It's like, we don't have a high priest who is unsympathetic, who's like off on some distant planet and is like, come on, buck up or, you know, walk it off. Sort of a, (laughs) sort of a celestial, like gruff, distant dad. Who's like, stop whining. He's like, no, no, he's like, he's walked it and he's experienced it. I just, I, I think that's a, that's a profound mystery. Yeah. Number three, uh, let me just read, you know, for the sake of time, let me read the last three and maybe you can decide which one I think will send our people off here in the best way. Uh, because I, I'm sure there are people listening right now going, man, this is right where I'm at. I'm yeah. struggling with this question. Number three, she writes, God will walk us through it. Number four, God always stands by his people. And number five, God is calling us to be shepherds. Maybe end us off with one of those there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we bring it up a lot, and there's probably a reason for that. You know, if the most common command in Scripture is fear not, mm-hmm. which it is, uh, the words that most often accompany it are for I am with you. That's so right. it isn't just a blind like, hey, you should stop being so fearful or you should stop lamenting. You should stop grieving. But there's a promise of God's presence. And, you know, the psalmist says elsewhere that God is near the brokenhearted and heals the Christian spirit. But just the very fact that God's instinct is to draw near and not retreat when we're hurting, when we're mm-hmm. confused, when we look at the world and think, I don't know how I'm going to navigate through this. God doesn't say, I'm going to make everything rosy. Don't you worry. It's going to be a walk in the park. Many of us know that's not true. But over and over and over again, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake right. you. He says in the Great Commission, and I'm with you to the very end of the age. And to me, like now more than ever, that's a that's a promise that I think we all can cling to and a really, really important one that we not only cling to individually, but encourage one another in the same way. So uh, like I said at the beginning of the segment, I hope that's encouraging or challenging or life-giving in some way. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.